Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today's the 5th of June, 2021. Sorry, I don't have any music or jingles to play. And with that, I also don't have any advertisements, but I know that you're used to neither of those things uh, occurring on my podcast. So we'll just get right into this discussion. And then you can imagine the ad has been done and there's some interesting jingle music playing in the background. So what we were doing the last couple of lectures um, was getting into the neuroendocrine system. And I've been trying to get a, a formulation of the aging process towards morbidity, the various diseases that, that are associated with morbidity, and then linked with aging, and then on to mortality. That is, I, I'm developing a dialectical event ontology of what is normally experienced as the la later stages of life when people often get multiple uh, pathologies that ultimately lead to um, an associated constellation of events that make people very ill and then pass away. And we know that there are very common diseases that come up uh, that have maybe, maybe had been chronic throughout a person's life, cardiovascular disease, uh, various kinds of autoimmune disorders like um, arthritis, and of course, later stage uh, complications with minor infections from bacteria, for example, sometimes viruses, more rarely, of course, with viruses, fungi, and parasites in the Western world. But those two can contribute. Uh, we've talked a lot about cellular aging, senescence, the secretory-associated senescent responses, um, lack of cell division, either hyperimmune or hypoimmune responses, particularly in the CNS. Today, I want to uh, reflect back on a discussion we've had, um, oh, maybe twice already in the last six months. And this has to do with uh, dyslipidemia, but this is a very specific association. It has to do with sphingolipid patterning, particularly ceramide. So, um, if you remember, ceramide is an important sphingolipid precursor for sphingomyelin and the galactosphingolipids, but it's also a very potent um, communication networked biomolecule that links up with membrane raft mobility between the Golgi apparatus and the plasma membrane, trafficking uh, plasma membrane-associated receptors, bringing them back into the uh, cytoplasm for degeneration of the membrane raft, along with proteolytic degradation of the receptors, and then resynthesis of that entire uh, membrane unit, and then reincorporation back into the plasma membrane, that kind of trafficking back and forth. So let's take a look at that in the context of Alzheimer's disease. And this is what we're going to discuss today. This comes from couple of different papers. One of them is the Journal of Lipid Research 2018. Of course, I'll put it in the show notes. So Alzheimer's disease is phenotypically characterized with an accumulation, as we've mentioned many times, of A-beta-42 or amyloid beta peptide. You get an elevation of that or an accumulated elevation of that. And you also get an elevation of sphingolipid ceramide and mitochondrial associated damages. In fact, culturing astrocytes with A-beta-42 will in itself activate a neutral sphingomyelinase isoform 2, 
That will, of course, generate the product ceramide from shingomyelin. Now, to remind you, astrocytes are a subclass of the white matter glia cells that perform several key functions in the central nervous and indeed in the peripheral nervous system. Now, to just remind you of the various types of potential glial cells, we have glial non-neuronal central nervous system cells, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, microglia, which are the resident macrophages, um, epididymal cells, radioglia, glial non-neuronal PNS cells, that's peripheral nervous system cells, Schwann cells, and satellite cells fall into that category. Okay? So when we think about the various kinds of cells, dendrites receive electrical and chemical messages from other neurons. The cell body processes incoming signals and generates an outgoing signal that goes to the nucleus. Um, the axon then sends the outgoing signals to the axon terminals, and the axon terminals make contact with nearby cells and transmit signals to them. Ultimately, then you get information flow through the neuron. So we have um, myelinated neurons and non-myelinated neurons. And again, the myelinated ones move through uh, post-axon hillock through the nodes of Ranvier where the myelin sheath is interrupted. And remember that you have a single, when, when you look at a single glial cell, it wraps itself around the axon and that forms a segment of what we call the myelin, or just simply the myelin sheath inundated with these nodes of Ranvier. So you get an idea of some of the cellular architecture we're talking about. Now amongst glial cells, microglia, astrocytes, and tannocytes have been most clearly implicated in various components of metabolic control. Uh, so you have these tannocytes, which are specialized epididymal cells lining the 3V axis. And that, uh, that involves a regulation of the entry of bloodborne substances into the brain. So you have receptors for metabolic hormones and sex steroids at this site in these tannocytes. You, of course, also have the astrocytes. They're the most abundant glial cell type in the brain. They, they give you neuronal support and communication. They are strategically positioned to sense nutritional status and to provide, once again, blood-borne nutrients to neurons. There are, they are particularly associated with fatty acid oxidation to ketones. You also have receptors for metabolic hormones and sex steroids. And there's a component there that is also linked to cytokine um, production. This is all the astrocytes. Now, the microglia, again, as I've said many times, are the macrophages of the CNS. Here you can get neuroinflammation and you, sometimes brain injury response. There's a production of cytokines and neurotoxic factors and microglia receptors for metabolic hormones and sex steroids as well. So it gives you the three different uh, glia we're talking about right now, the tannocytes, the astrocytes, and the microglia. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common age-related neurodegenerative disease with an associated incremental dementia. Uh, at the protein level, AD is linked to both a neurofibrillary tangle 
and this beta amyloid deposit, although a direct causal mechanistic and biophysical link to these proteinopathies is certainly not universal in AD. Now, the majority of Alzheimer's disease, good 90 to 95% is idiopathic, with a ran that it, it's random, and there are major contributory factors uh, that we've discussed in the past, often comorbidities such as uh, immune, uh, previous immune responses in the central nervous system. Uh, but the number one contributory factor is simply being over 65 years old. There is a rare congenital form known as FAD. No, that's not flavonamide dinucleotide. It's familial Alzheimer's disease. And it does have some presumed genetic loci. Now, since all AD is characterized with this age-related progression of protein aggregation and accumulation, um, it has a family recognition with a lot of other neurodegenerative diseases. The number one uh, associated one would be Parkinson's, but you also have Huntington's chorea. Now, such proteinopathies obviously are implicated in pathoproteostasis. So pathoproteostasis can occur because of a corrupted lack of protein turnover with the ubiquitin proteasomal complex. You get excessive protein synthesis, for example, with the mTORC superactivity, and you can also have an incompetent or an underrepresented autophagic pathway. Now, autophagy has been a topic of many of my lectures, and uh, we can go back and you can go back and revisit those. I've done both video and audio. So we don't need to think, uh, discuss that to any great detail now. Astrocytes, of course, adhere to the central nervous system. They respond to stress and damage via reactive astrogliosis, which, of course, is an inflammation of the astrocytes. So you get an astrogliosis pathophysiology, and this is emblematic of tissue and macromolecular lesions, typically. You get reactive astrogliosis, and you get that, from that a spectrum of pathophysiology, and that generates a continuum of context-dependent signaling events, which is not unlike the senescence-associated secretory pathways. You get neuronal damage-induced astrogliosis, and that involves, of course, represented by an epigenetic reversible gene expression pattern which is often associated with cell proliferation and hypertrophy and a preservation of cellular domains and tissue structure to all the way to the other end of the spectrum, long-lasting scar formation with a, a complete rearrangement of tissue structure, often leading to hypertrophy. So you have CNS pathologies where the astrocytes respond to trauma, stroke, the neurodegenerative disease itself, and what happens is they become reactive. So you can see this from uh, after reactive astrogliosis uh, by studying the pattern of expression of gene, uh, green fluorescent protein that has been linked to a promoter for the various genes that are known to be triggered during reactive astrogliosis. What genes are triggered? Well, you get... Uh, TGF-alpha, CNTF, IL-6, and also LIF. 
Now, those genes we've talked about in great detail. I'm not going to spend much time with them today, but I will also add, along with triggering of all those genes, you get increased ceramide production. Now, it's believed that after reactive astrogliosis, you get proliferation, and that response is believed to handle acute stress by limiting tissue and organ damage, and uh, usually it restores homeostasis. The physiological functions include a control of neuronal synapses, neurotransmitter uptake and recycling, the maintenance of homeostasis, as mentioned, control of the blood-brain barrier integrity, a regulation of that blood flow, and a control and modulation of neurogenesis. Now, that's physiological astrogliosis. Reactive astrogliosis is disease-specific. It can range from a mild to very severe uh, to the point of a glial scar. You get regional specificity and activity, and it can be diffused or it can sequester the lesion area in a specific nucleus. If you have persisting reactive gliosis, it can become completely maladaptive. So attenuation of reactive gliosis is often a therapeutic goal, as you might guess. So let's talk about this nutrisphingomyelinase. Uh, that um, NSM, isoform 2, has been shown to shuttle between the plasma membrane and the Golgi. And of course, it's activated by mitochondrially associated lipid. Ceramide is the sphingolipid, concentration of which is usually less than one mole percent compared to approximately 10 mole percent of its parent substrate, sphingomyelin, which you often find in cellular membranes at about 10%. So ceramide is only about 1%. Ceramide is made in the endoplasmic reticulum by ceramide synthases, of course, and they bond fatty acyl residues along chain bases such as sphingosine and dihydrosphingosine. Uh, ceramide can also be made by the hydrolysis of sphingomyelin and these are caused by the sphingomyelinases. Right? And so you, you remember that sphingomyelinases, there is a distinct cellular compartmental pattern. So you can find them in various regions of the subcellular, re, uh, subcellular portions of the cell, plasma membrane, lysosomes, Golgi, and even indeed mitochondria. Now, sphingomyelin is broken down by sphingomyelinase to ceramide. Ceramide can be metabolized ultimately um, to sphingosine. That enzyme is called ceraminidase. The sphingosine can be phosphorylated, the sphingosine 1-phosphate by a kinase. And the sphingosine 1-phosphate, which is a very potent signaling molecule, can also be degraded by the sphingomyelin 1-lyase, which will actually generate uh, a phosphorylated amine called ethanolamine 1-phosphate and palmitaldehyde. Okay. Ceramide synthase will build up ceramide directly from sphingosine. Now, the de novo pathway, which we've talked about many times on Authentic Biochemistry, set up with the amino acid L-serine and the fatty acid synthesis product, palmitoyl-CoA. So serine plus palmitoyl-CoA in the presence of 
the serine palmitoyl transferase, which we've talked about just recently, will make that three ketosphingonine, which will be converted to dihydrosphingonine and then through dehydroceramide synthase, making dihydroceramide, and then finally the hydroceramide desaturase, that particularly important enzyme, will then make ceramide. Where ceramide then, then can be used as a building block for sphingomyelin after the addition of phosphonocholine. Okay, I'm just reminding you of the pathway. Now, <clears throat> oxidative stress is associated with an increased expression of the amyloid precursor protein and the enzyme BACE1, uh, which is a convertase. And that will lead to, of course, the accumulation of the peptide A-beta-42. The clearance of A-beta-42 from the brain is also blocked, unfortunately, by oxidative stress. And so the association of A-beta-42 with mitochondria, microglia, and metal ions will lead to further oxidative stress in the form of reactive oxygen. So the oxidative stress can then lead to transcription of redox-sensitive transcription factors. And this is also, of course, in the presence of iron. And you can increase in that way uh, the accumulation of amyloid precursor protein. Likewise, oxidative stress will turn on reactive oxygen-sensitive transcriptional patterns, and that will include a protein kinase R and an elongation factor 2, all of which will amplify the transcription and then translation of the convertase enzyme BASE1, B-A-C-E-1. When that goes up, then it takes the amyloid precursor protein and converts it to the A-beta-42, the A-beta-42 can be cleared by the LRP1 RAGE complex. RAGE is the receptor for advanced glycation products, of course. Um, and the LRP1 is a low-density lipoprotein receptor-related protein. That's a way of eliminating the A-beta-42. The A-beta-42, though, however, can enhance copper and iron uh, redox metabolism which can lead to further oxidative stress, leading to more base one and more APP, and therefore more A-beta-42. The A-beta-42 also will activate the microglia, which will itself enhance oxidative stress. Finally, when A-beta-42 starts to accumulate, it'll interact with other proteins and lipids, particularly at the mitochondrion, and when this occurs, it will tank bioenergetics by increasing reactive oxygen, okay? So this is some of the phenotype in prodromal Alzheimer's disease. Now, you have various kinds of nutritional depletion and stress, which will of course trigger the AMP kinase. The AMP kinase will intracellularly block mTORC1 mTORC1 is normally turned on by rapamycin when it's added exogenously, but it will also be turned on by TORIN1 uh, uh, signaling, and even nutrient abundance will turn on mTORC1. mTORC1 then will um, eliminate the interaction of the ULK complex, which involves a series of proteins, which otherwise would lead to um, a PD, uh, uh, a protein, uh, excuse me, a P13 kinase 3 complex, 
And that then would lead to phagophore induction into isolating membranes endogenously generated as cargo with a series of protein binding to that phagophore system. When that occurs, LC3 binds, you get an autophagosome, and then ultimately lysosome uh, combines with that autophagosome and you get an autolysosome, which will then generate a degradative autophagy pathway. Now, again, that will be blocked depending on whether of growth factor status and whether or not you get nutrient deprivation. Now, when autophagy is triggered, this is where it links up with some of these uh, morbidity phenotypes and aging. You get a lot of cell death. You get neurodegenerative diseases, sensu stricto. You get type 2 diabetes. You get a fatty liver, infectious diseases, cardiomyopathies. And of course, it triggers the innate immune response. Autophagy triggers the innate immune response. Indeed, it does. Autophagy also can trigger cancer. And as I think I mentioned already, it can also turn on programmed cell death with the right signaling. So these are all pathological and physiopathological functions of autophagy, all of which are linked to aging. So a dysfunction in autophagy ultimately will result in the poor clearance of amyloid beta aggregates. Of course, amyloid beta aggregates are harmful to the central nervous system. Indeed, neuronal A-beta is contingent, contingent decreases with increasing autophagy. So in general, dysfunctional autophagy is observed in human central neurodegeneration. Functional autophagy tracks pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease, where it serves to remit A-beta and tau pathologies and the associated neuropsychiatric outcomes, such as in uh, learning and memory issues. So three types of autophagy are described in mammalian cells. First one is a chaperone-mediated autophagy, or CMA, and that degrades specific cytosolic proteins containing the CMA motif. That is recognized by a chaperone complex and conducted to the lysosome, where the protein is internalized through the LAMP2A translocation complex, and ultimately it becomes degraded. Second type of autophagy in mammals is microautophagy. That, of course, links with uh, the sequestration and the degradation of polypeptides and entire organelles through a direct invagination of the lysosomal membrane. Third type of autophagy is macroautophagy, and that eliminates intracellular components, proteins, and entire organelles, again, by both selective and non-selective mechanisms. The substrates are enclosed in a double uh, limit membrane vesicle called the autophagosome, and then once the substrates are engulfed inside the autophagosome, fusion with the lysosome can occur. And sometimes you get the autophagolysosome fusing first with a late endosome. And then that forms another uh, compartment called the amphisome. Now, I want you to note that alterations in autophagy pathways have been well described for several neurodegenerative diseases, as you might guess. And those defects in the autophagy machinery can occur at different steps along the pathway, involved with various proteins uh, that have been linked to this whole phenomenon, okay? All right. So moving on here. 
checking my time. There is a formal and official entry of pathophysiological sphingolipid metabolism that is intimately involved in this proteinopathy. So we've been talking primarily about proteinopathies, but now let's let's phase back into the lipid metabolism, which is where we where we've been now for some time, right? And I and I want to remind you about sphingolipids in particular, because this is what this is the key feature of uh, where we've been going throughout this process. And let me see here. Dihydroceramide, ceramide, and ceramide 1-phosphate, sphingosine 1-phosphate, and even indeed the gangliosides, all are potent signaling molecules that contribute to the pathogenesis of inflammatory disease. The dihydroceramide is a precursor to ceramide, as we've mentioned, and that's in the de novo sphingolipid synthesis via the action and activity uh, of dihydroceramide desaturases. You get two of those, DES1, DES2. DES1, as we've talked about before, is intimately associated with the electron transport chain. And that, of course, includes an NADPH cytochrome B5 reductase and a cytochrome B5. And it is active at the cytosolic phase face, excuse me, of the ER. So when DES1 is silent, cells exhibit high levels of autophagy, in part to do an impaired ATP synthesis that leads then ultimately to the activation of, yes, indeed, AMP kinase. Now, one observation about this that uh, comes in the literature is resveratrol, or actually tocotrienols, which are, of course, vitamin E components, can affect amyloidosis in animal models. So how does that work? Well, remember, resveratrol can induce autophagy after an increase in dihydroceramide because it inhibits dehydroceramide desaturase, similar to dehydroceramide desaturase inhibitor, which has been well described uh, in the pharmaceutical literature. Remember the palmitoyl-CoA and L-serine make three keto dehydrosphingosine. And then that uh, product is reduced uh, via NADPH to sphinganine, also known as the hydrosphingosine. Uh, and then you're well on the way to making dihydroceramide, then the dihydroceramide desaturates the ceramide, where you introduce that trans double bond. Ceramide can go directly to making complex sphingolipids like sphingomyelin and glycosphingolipids. And remember too that ceramide can be generated by uh, ceraminidase functioning on the sphingosine molecule. And that, of course, can come from the sphingosine 1-phosphate um, pathway. So I'm going to stop here because I'm going to start, I'm going to leave autophagy and get into apoptosis again. I just wanted to lead you into autophagy so that we can get back into lip metabolism. Next time, we're going to talk about sphingomyelinase, ceramide synthase leading to ceramide synthesis, and then ceramide synthesis to sphingosine 1-phosphate, and if ceramide accumulates, you get apoptosis. If it doesn't, sphingosine-1-phosphate ultimately can resynthesize glycosylceramides, and you're back into a healthy central nervous system. Okay? So these two things are going to be competing. That is apoptosis versus uh, normal sphingolipid uh, turnover metabolism in the CNS. And that's where we're going to pick up um, next time. So I'm going to stop here.
and tell you that this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on the wonderful 5th of June, 2021, saying bye for now.